you. It's such a joy to be with the lunatic fringe, uh, where I feel right at home. And uh, I actually really, I owe such a debt to the vineyard in so many ways. I, I can't even really describe to you, but I can um, describe to you hours and hours and hours I've spent in a prayer room in a slum rooming house in the downtown east side of Vancouver with vineyard worship. Uh, on repeat, just lying on this floor. I was thinking of it during the worship tonight. I was, I'd be lying on this floor in this slummy rooming house and you really tried everything you could not to actually touch the sides of the wall because they had bed bugs, you know? <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, and so this, the vineyard really, really nourished my soul and taught me a lot about intimacy and worship. And uh, actually, I remember the, the album, The Mystery by David Ruiz. You know, I just, I literally out of Winnipeg there, that, that little album they put together, I, I wore mine out, I kid you not. It just, I just allowed it to kind of wash over me and it, it really transformed me. So I feel, you know, I really feel like, I, I really do love you guys. It's not just something I say, I think. Uh, your movement has offered just such a beautiful gift uh, to the church and to me personally, so thank you, whether you had anything to do with it or not. Uh, I, at first, when I was thinking about this more thing, you know, I just thought, you know, you greedy bastards. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just didn't want to bore you tonight, so... I thought, you know, really, you want more? Uh, more what exactly? I thought, you know, if empowerment is choice, you, you certainly don't need more power, right? I mean, you make us, you know, us, the Western world, we make more choices uh, for breakfast than most of the world makes in their life. You know, if it's resource, you're among the top 3% of the wealthiest people on the planet. You don't need more money. You really don't. You don't need more money. If it's uh, more Holy Spirit, I'm pretty sure the scripture said the fullness has already been given. It's all been given, right? I said, the, the scripture says that you have everything that you need already. And that actually the plans are already in motion for the Holy Spirit to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Uh, you can't possibly want more of Jesus since he poured every single ounce of his life out already. So what do you want more of? What more is there? You know, that's what I was just thinking, what is their problem? Like, what more do you want? I'm pretty sure that's a prophetic word right there. Straight from the Father's heart. What more do you guys want, you know? And then I, I started to think about it. I started to think, you know, it's not that we need more of God. It's really that God needs more of us. Yes. It really is. And I was thinking about the more that we need. We need more obedience. We need more honesty. We need more humility. We need more true worship. We need more repentance. We need more forgiveness. We need more action. You know? And I was thinking there's so much more. Then I just kind of was like, okay, all right, let's get going. You know, <laughs> I want some more. You know, I really want some more. And uh, I was thinking particularly, I just couldn't get this thing out of my head, this Acts chapter 10, you know, where Peter uh, is such a beautiful story. I just, I can't, I can't, I think it's a word for the church right now, the whole church, but uh, Acts chapter 10, you can start at verse nine if you want to follow this, but it's so, it's so Monty Python in my mind. I just, it's just such a good example of why the Lord is gracious to keep choosing men to do ministry. I just... <laughs> I just don't understand it. But anyway, in Acts, 
10, you know, there's this story that goes on with Cornelius and he's having a revelation, this Roman officer guard. And then in verse nine, Peter is uh, on the roof and he's praying, which by the way, is a fantastic thing to do if you want more. It really is. I mean, I I recently uh, read a book by Richard Rohr called Dancing, Standing Still. It's about the connection between contemplative prayer and social justice and action. And it was a fantastic thing because, you know, he said the problem with social justice and the social transformation and things that we want to do is that they're just too big. It's too big. You know, we're in the middle of it and it's too large and we just can't, we can't change anything. We can't shift anything. We can't get anything done. But he said the way that you move something heavier than you is you get some leverage. And he suggests that what prayer is, intentional prayer, set apart prayer, not the practice of prayer that all Christian leaders do. Trust me, I know right, where we can get stuff done and still attend to the Lord. You know, we've got that sort of like, oh yeah, I practice prayer every day. Sure you do. (laughs) Sure you do, don't we all, right? But I mean the type of prayer where you actually set yourself apart, where you set some time apart, where you go up on a roof to pray and you hang out with the Lord. The type of prayer that Mother Teresa suggested, like at a bare minimum, would be two hours a day. John Wesley suggested he could barely sneak by with three. How's your prayer life? If you want more, how is that? So Peter goes up on the roof and he has this time of prayer. And while he's praying, this sheet is lifted down from heaven. It's put down from heaven. And there's all these things on there that he's not allowed to do. Things he's learned from his youth, the scripture says, that are unclean. And a voice speaks from heaven and says, kill and eat. (laughs) And Peter says, absolutely not. No thanks. No, Lord. And then it comes again, and then it comes again. And then this is my favorite verse of the scripture. It's so fantastic. I just love it. Peter was disturbed and perplexed. You sure you want more? You sure you want more? Because I'll tell you right now, more feels like that. The more of the kingdom of God, the more revelation that God gives you, the more disturbed and perplexed you're going to be. The more sort of like in that place where you're like, what is going on? Mind blown. The more like, I can't figure this out. I can't see this happening. I don't know how this revelation fits with this ministry, fits with this church, fits with this community. I don't know how this is going to work. You're going to be disturbed and perplexed. And here's one of the things I've learned in ministry. If you're not disturbed and perplexed, you probably haven't heard from God recently. He's confusing. He's confusing. What could this vision possibly mean? That's what Peter says to himself. Now, I am reminded of this guy who was teaching a prophetic prayer, like a listening to God seminar in uh, South Africa uh, years ago. And this young guy comes up to me and it was brand new. It was in the Salvation Army Church. and We don't do a whole lot of that sometimes. And so it was all very like scary. And this guy comes up to me and he's like, okay, uh, okay, I had this like this vision when we were doing the exercise. And I said, that's fantastic. What did you see? And he said, well, it was like Lord of the Rings, you know, and my friend and I, we were there and we had our swords out. We were like charging towards this hill. And then we like got to the top of the hill and we saw these hordes from hell coming up that, you know, just thousands and thousands of these like demonic dead things. And then we like just both looked at each other. Ah! And we like turned around and we like put our swords away and we ran for our lives. And then I heard a voice from heaven and the voice said, get out your sword. And then he looks at me and he says, I have no idea what it means. <laughs>
Peter was disturbed and perplexed. What could this possibly mean? Thankfully, there's a knock at the door. <laughs> this is like 101. This is how God makes it so easy for men to follow the calling of the Lord. <laughs> I am convinced that I'm on the second vision. The Holy Spirit said, I told you, you should have picked a woman. I'm convinced that's how that went in heaven. <laughs> you read your Bibles, you'll see for yourself, right? God shows up with perplexing, disturbing visions to women and they just say, may it be to me as you have spoken. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, when my son, Judy, is three years old, uh, are you guys having too much fun? Is this too much fun? Okay, we'll get to the Bible in a second, but more. <laughs> You want more? <laughs> you can't handle more. No, I'm just. <laughs> oh, my son Judy is three years old. I tell this story. I, I tell it really to remind myself. So if you've heard it, I'm sorry, but like I tell it because it's helpful to me. It really is. I'm trying to give him some medicine. He's got an ear infection. He won't take it. His favorite words at the time were "No way." My son and I, we, we desperately, my, my older son and I, we're trying to convince the kid, you know, we're convincing him. I went to the doctor, I said, you gotta give me the best stuff. He gives me a banana flavored penicillin, liquid, the best stuff. So we went, we did a monkey routine, we did a lion routine. You're just like, everybody loves this stuff, you gotta try it, you know, Psst, wanna buy some banana flavored penicillin? <laughs> and Judah says, no way. So I did what every loving, gracious, kind mother on the planet does. I held that little sucker down. <laughs> I sat on his writhing little body. I held down his arms. He's still going, no way, no way. I call over my son's line. I say, somebody quick, get his head. His eyes like holding his head. And I ever so gently, kindly, lovingly took that syringe filled with banana flavored medicine and I shoved it down his little throat. And I said, yes, way. And as soon as it was done, you know, I felt the spirit of the Lord speak strongly to me. And he said, oh, I see. You do your salvation like you do your medicine. I said, well, of course I do. I mean, I come from the tradition of the Salvation Army. Catherine Booth once was criticized for shoving religion down people's throats. She looked at the reporter and said, well, how else would it get there? <laughs> I said, people are sick, man. They're going to die. I'm going to give them the remedy. I'm going to give them the cure for what ails them. Of course I am. I'm going to shove it down their throat. I'm going to act like a monkey. I'm going to roar like a lion. Whatever it is, we're going to do what it takes to get it in. And the Lord said, that's not what I mean. It's just that the kind you're administering is just so very small. There's more. And he reminded me of the story. It wasn't long. It's a song. William Booth, founder of the Selfish Army, wrote it 150 years ago. It's this fascinating song called, O Boundless Salvation. I actually had already tattooed it on my arm because all hardcore Salvation Army officers tattoo O Boundless Salvation on their arms. Everybody knows that. That's how you tell a fake one from a real one. It's a song that he wrote. It's O Boundless Salvation, Devotion of Love, O Fullness of Mercy Christ brought from above the whole world redeeming, so rich and so free, O boundless salvation, come roll 
over me. The Lord spoke to me and said, in light of that song, do you still want some banana-flavored medicine? Or would you like an endless sea? Would you like an ocean that completely consumes you, that rolls over you, that is more than you could even possibly imagine or dream, or would you still like just enough for what ails you personally? And I was reminded, just like Peter, you know, he thought this is it. The Messiah has come to the Jewish people. This is everything that we could have possibly saw fulfilled. I'm living in this time and in this age and on that roof that day, everything got bigger. Everything, he was invited into the more, the revelation that God has for his kingdom come on the earth, a revelation of, that God has for salvation to be boundless and to be free, to redeem the entire world. People, there's more. There's more, there's more revelation. So a knock comes at the door and Cornelius' men is there and they're saying, is there a man named Peter here? I just love how it's that easy. Just open the door. Just open the door. You know, for years and years and years, we pray for the 1040 window. We prayed for it. You know, those maps, I was just talking in, uh, I was in the Jordan in Amman and I was talking to a world relief worker. She's a young girl who's been working for 10 years with refugees. They're seeing Muslims come to faith all the time. They're just seeing this incredible outpouring of God's spirit in this place where these people are in desperate need. And in the name of Jesus, they're going and they're caring and they're loving and they're serving at great cost to themselves. And she said, you know, when I was a little girl, I used to be in my house, my dad, my parents are Christians and they'd have that little map on the wall with the 1040 window and they used to pray, God, make a way, make a way, <laughs> make a way. And she said, this is the way. This is the way, this is the way, this is how God is working his ability to bring revelation to a Muslim population of the world. This is the way God's gonna break the Middle East open for the gospel. This is the way redemption comes to the earth, but she says nobody wants it to be the way. Nobody wants it to be the way, and this is what happens. These guys say, Peter, you gotta come with us, and he's like, who are you? And they're like, we're with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. <laughs> And little Jewish boys did not grow up going to Roman centurion places, houses. They grew up throwing rocks at Roman statues. They grew up hating them. They grew up just despising them. They grew up believing that the Messiah was going to overthrow them, that was going to cast the Romans down and raise up the Jewish people again. I mean, this is not just anybody's house. This is the enemy's house. This is the unclean Gentile. This is that house. And that's where he gets invited, and this is where it even still is confusing for Peter. He's just literally connecting the dots of the kingdom of God, which is what we're all hoping to do. <laughs> I'm at dot three. Does it make any sense yet? I'm at dot five. Can you see a shape? He goes to Cornelius' house, and there's this beautiful, beautiful thing. When the Holy Spirit comes, and Cornelius tells his heart, and instantly Cornelius goes from being an enemy to being a human being, just like Peter, hungering for the things of God, wanting the fullness of God, wanting more with his life. And the Holy Spirit comes in the same way that it came on the Jews. And Peter exclaims this. It's unbelievable. He says, now I understand for the first time that God shows no partiality that everybody is equal in the sight of God, that everybody gets more, that everybody gets invited in, and Peter gets into this more revelation. As a matter of fact, the actions that Peter took that day cost him. It cost him severely. He was in trouble when he got back to headquarters. 
He was in trouble, and actually that trouble about the Gentiles getting saved never stopped all through the book of Acts. They're constantly calling councils. They're constantly calling, you know, conferences saying, let's talk about that. Does that make any sense? Is that theologically accurate? Can we actually get our heads around this? No, you can't get your heads around the more. The more revelation, the disturbed and perplexed. You can get disturbed and perplexed, but you can't get your head around this because God has immeasurably more. He has a plan. Now, I, I was talking, I was in Lebanon a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to this guy, Camille, who started an organization called Heart for Lebanon. He's a Lebanese guy. And he was telling me his story. It was so remarkable. See, I had not realized that the Syrians had destroyed Lebanon. I hadn't realized that they were violent occupiers of their land. That's my own ignorance. It was, I was reading up on the plane on my way over to the trip to kind of catch up, you know. And uh, I didn't realize the Syrians were their enemies, Literally, they're enemies. Every Lebanese person has memories of being either bombed or tortured or watching their country be bombed and destroyed by the Syrians. So when I hear refugees are fleeing, Syrian refugees are fleeing to Lebanon, for me as a Westerner, I'm just like, well, help them. When the Lebanese see Syrians coming over to Lebanon, they're like, too bad for you. They're their enemy. They've destroyed Lebanon. Camille told me that many, many years ago, about a dozen years ago, when the Iraqi crisis happened, the Lord called him very specifically. He was in America. He had been trained at a theological school. The Lord had called him to ministry. He had a lot of really good offers. And God spoke to him kind of on his own roof when he made space to create some leverage. He made some intentional space, and God spoke to him and his wife very clearly and said, I'm calling you to Lebanon. Nobody wanted to go to Lebanon. Everybody wanted to go to America. And him and his wife decided that day they were going to go to Lebanon and they were going to start helping the Iraqi refugees because he said that seemed like a really good Christian thing to do. And he said, little did I know that all it was was preparation for what God really wanted to do, which is bring salvation to the Muslim population of Syria. And he said, now the greatest crisis, the greatest humanitarian crisis sort of in the planet since World War II, I mean, the greatest displacement of people, these Syrian Muslims who could never have heard of the gospel ever in Syria without death to the person presenting it to them are now by the millions sitting here waiting for help. And we're going in as Lebanese Christians, the enemy of the Syrian people, and we're going to them and we're saying, can we help you? Can we heal you? Can we ask Jesus to be with you? Are you hungry? Do your kids need school? Is there some way that we can serve you? And literally the Syrian people are saying, why are you doing this? What's the catch? How is this happening? And those Christians, those Lebanese Christians who have been wounded, who consider the Syrians their enemy, has said this has happened because Jesus told us to come, because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus loves you, because I've forgiven you because we're brothers. And actually it was so powerful to go to witness with them in the tents and see these Lebanese people loving these people as though they're their brothers, as though they're their friends, this incredible thing. And I said to Camille, how are you doing this? Camille himself, his uh, house was bombed, his, his parents were killed, his daughter just barely survived a bombing and still lives with the, the, uh, the aftermath of that in her daily life. I said, how are you doing this? He said, well, it's one thing to talk about forgiveness. We talk about it so flippantly, we talk about it so, and it's a whole other thing to forgive, but he said, this is how it happened, and this is so profound. He said that I entered into forgiveness when I was willing to deal with my own pain, but he said, it wasn't until I actually went that forgiveness made sense. 
It wasn't until I actually went. It wasn't until I acted upon the word. It wasn't until I showed up. And this is what happens with Peter. And here's the problem. We all want the more of God, but we want it on this side, not on that side. We all want it before we go. We want it to make sense before we take the step. We want, it to, we want to feel it. We want to know it. We want to own it. But it's not until we go that it all makes sense. And that's when Peter has his aha moment when he's in the house. When he's willing to cross over his religious boundaries of unclean and clean. When he's willing to sacrifice his reputation. When he's willing to go when he doesn't quite understand. But he's just kind of following what's in front of him to do. When he's willing to lay that down on the line. When he's probably willing to lay down his leadership and what people think of him. And what the ramifications are going to be for when he gets back to Jerusalem. When he's willing to lay that down and he gets into Cornelius' house. That's when, boom, the revelation comes. Oh, I get it now. God has more. God has more, and it was the same thing Camille got. When he got to the place, when he got to the tent, and he got into that place, and he listened to the suffering of the people, he realized, oh, I get it now. I get it now. And he said, when he heard their suffering, he understood the same pain. And as he realized that they were experiencing the same pain as him, he said, forgiveness came quick, and it came easy. It came quick and it came easy. And as forgiveness came in those places, so did the more of God for the plan for the world. Are you living in the more? <laughs> we don't need more power, more resources, more Holy Spirit, more Jesus. We need more obedience. We need more willingness. We need more honesty. We need more humility. We need more Isaiah 58 worship. We need more repentance. We need more forgiveness. God help us live in the more. God help us live in the more. And here's what we can never have more of. We can never have too much more of. John chapter 12. We can never have too much love. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrives in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. <laughs> That's not bad, eh? When you like to be able to say that all the time. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, shocker. Didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> Lazarus probably complaining. Mary was nowhere to be found. And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. And then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Isn't that the truth? Isn't it? It's true. What a waste. I mean, it makes no logical sense. Any Salvation Army person would say that exact same thing. <laughs> what a waste. Do you know, uh, there's a TED Talk, beautiful Helen Fisher. She does this talk on our brains in love. It's a study, you know, I don't, I don't know how this works, but she was, she's a neurologist specialist and she wanted to, to understand how our brains work when they're in love. So she got all these volunteer people who said they were in love and she measured their brains in an MRI machine. You can't make this stuff up. 
And she measured all their brains. She did a study to see like how their brains compared. And there were these three qualities in every brain that was in love that were the same. She said there were three areas of the brain that just lit up off the charts. The first one was the pleasure and reward system of the brain. These people considered it their great joy. <laughs> all the time when they were in love. Two, the calculated risk area of their brain. You know that part of the brain when you're like gambling, not that you would ever do that, you're way too holy, but like if ever you were to gamble and you're just like, yeah, sure, bet it all on seven, that part of your brain is like, woo, out of control when you're in love. And three, deep attachment. The three parts of your brain when you're in love, pleasure, reward, calculated risk, and deep attachment. Listen to this. Pleasureless, risk-free, detached. That's what your life is like when you're not in love. It's measured. It's reasonable. It makes complete sense. How boring. <laughs> How boring is that? When all the people hear of Jesus, oh, Jesus says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And then he says, what she's done for me today will be preached all over the world whenever the gospel is preached. What? Wherever the gospel is preached, this I mean, what has just happened here? And one of the things I think we mistakenly do is we think that we arrive places instead of we become people. We think that our postures are fixed. See, what we think is that Mary was a disciple and Judas wasn't, but Judas was a disciple. You know, in my house, we, I have these rules around Star Wars. My, my kids are Star Wars fans. And I'm all for Star Wars. The force is strong with our family. I'm like for it. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. But we're all, but we're Jedis. You know, there's no Sith Lords coming on t-shirts in my house. You know what I'm saying? Darkness has enough representation in the world. It's not gonna happen. We're good guys. We're always on the good guy team, so I have this really strict rule, no Siths in my house, only Jedis are allowed. The force is strong with you boys, you know? And so we have this rule, and my son, he's 14 years old, he came home with a Darth Vader shirt on, and I was like, what's going on with the shirt? Darth Vader, Sith Lord in my house. Now it was a fascinating conversation, because of course, when I met Darth Vader, when I first saw Star Wars, I saw him as a Sith Lord. You remember, that's how he was introduced. <laughs> Striking fear in the heart of every kid, right? Not Darth Vader. Just, but when my son met Darth Vader, he wasn't Darth Vader. He was Anakin. He was like a Jedi with promise. He had potential. As a matter of fact, he was the one. He was the chosen one. He was one of the ones. He was one of the ones that was gonna restore. And then there was this like little blip in his life. There was this like, you know, Sith Lord problem that he had, this little like, you know, he had a little catch. And then, but then of course at the end, he restored balance to the force by getting rid of the evil emperor and like, ta-da, saving his son. He's a good guy. My son looked at me like clear in the eye and he said, he's a good guy. And we had a big problem. <laughs> but I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. And I've been thinking about Judas a lot lately. And I, th I, was, I, I was thinking about how much potential he had. 
And I was thinking about his possibilities, actually, and I was thinking about the fluidity of his choices. I was thinking about the options that he had in this encounter where we're looking in hindsight back and we're going, oh yeah, Judas, that was his posture because he's a traitor, because he's like a dark Sith Lord of the Force. Like, you know, we have this picture of Judas that's fixed, but our lives are not fixed. Our leadership aren't, is not fixed. Our decisions are not endless. They're not stuck. We're not stuck in place. We're fluid. We have choices. We have decisions we could make. We have choices we could make. We have things that we could do. And every choice that we have, every choice that we make, and the time that we make it, it leads to something else. And Mary, we know, you know, she made choices before this as well, choices that were costly. She made choices to defy social norms. She made choices to press into Jesus. She made choices that in the midst of her grief, she would still believe and be expectant for God to show up in miraculous power for her brother. She made some choices even here for her future. She scratched it. Her backup plan, her plan B, her marriage proposal, whatever it was, she broke it open and poured it out at the feet of Jesus. And as a result of that extravagant love offering, that brain in love, that totally crazy decision, it led to even more crazy decisions. She was the witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first of them, the leader of the disciples. You're not stuck, is what I'm trying to say. You're not stuck. And even though you're tempted to make decisions that are right, it's true. It's insane what Jesus is asking. It's it's insane what we're we're willing to give up. It's, It's crazy, it doesn't make any sense. You would have to be mad or in love. And those two always go together. Ask the neurologists. They're cra- it's crazy, it's preposterous to think of what, of what the Lord requires, more, more. You want more, God? You want more? And God says, I guess we have that in common. We both want more. So we want more opportunity. We want more possibilities. We want more people saved. We want more societal impact. We want more social change. We want more salvations. We want more healings. We want to see more of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living than we've ever seen before. We want to see the world saved. We want to see the Muslim population come into the glorious presence of the forgiveness of Jesus. We want to see it happen. We want to see the nations change. We want more, and God says, me too. I want more. I want more of you, I want your future, I want your decisions to change, I want you to change your mind, I want you to learn, I want you to embrace correction, I want you to be more humble, I want you to be more honest, I want you to pay attention to what I'm asking you to do, I want you to make choices right now to change your posture where it needs to be changed, I want you to stop just taking what makes sense, and I want you to embrace the posture of confused and disturbed as a lifestyle. I want you to stay there until it's clear. I want you to take the first knock that comes to your door. I want you to follow it. I want you to go find your enemy and forgive them. I want you to be reconciled. I want you to have revelations of how human you are and how you're relating to every other human being that you see. I want you to actually take the risk. I want you to go to the places where you're not supposed to go. I want your family to be disturbed. I want your sensibilities as a mother to be messed up. I want you to have those conversations. I remember when I I was called to move to the downtown east side with a three-month-old baby. 
And I couldn't really figure it out. It's an infectious disease, drug-addicted neighborhood. I was thinking to the, my mother herself said to me, are you sure it was God? And I wasn't so sure. I wasn't so sure, especially after having, I remember having this three-month-old kid, and I had prayed when my father dedicated him to the Lord. He said this little thing. He said, you know, whenever God's about to change the world, he does it through the announcement of a child. And so because I have messianic issues, I started to pray, make my baby a baby that might change the world. Make my baby a baby that might change the world. Don't worry, he's in counseling now. <laughs> make my baby a baby that'll change the world. And I'm on the street, pain and wastings, it's called Hastings Street, and I've got this three-month-old baby in the snuggly, you know, and I'm walking down the street, drug addicts and prostitutes, and just like this death, it's this death culture, and every maternal instinct, I can hear my mother's voice in my head, are you sure it's God, are you sure it's God? Every maternal instinct is just like, this cannot be God. This cannot be God, this is not right, this is, I'm confused and I'm disturbed. And so what we do when we're in that situation normally is we turn and we run, because that can't be God, except if you read your Bible. And then it's pretty clear that that's exactly what God calls us into. That that's exactly what it feels like to enter into the more of God. That's how it feels on the inside. I remember walking down the street going, ah! And this drunk native guy, this drunk First Nations guy runs into me. So in my best Mother Teresa voice, I'm like, watch where you're going. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, oh, he's like totally loaded. He goes, oh, wow, you got a baby. Didn't see the baby there. What's your baby's name? I said, my baby's name is Zion. And he looks at me stone cold sober. He says, that baby's going to change the world. We resist those places, don't we? We run and we hide and we tell ourselves that can't be God. That can't be God. That can't be his plan. It doesn't make any sense. God wouldn't require that of me. I could take all of that and I could donate it. And it would serve the poor. Doesn't that sound awesome? Well, it depends on if you want more, I guess. So how do we get it? How do you get more love? <laughs> you receive it. You give what you get. You receive it. You know, when I trained to be a Salvation Army officer with my husband, uh, we trained in Toronto, Canada, right when the airport vineyard thing happened. I know it's a bit of a sensitive issue. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> and uh, he went, full Salvation Army uniform, him and his buddy, we'd been praying every morning for revival, so we just assumed the Lord had answered our prayers. <laughs> just got the wrong location, but. So he went, you know, the pastor's information meeting back in the early days, and he went the front row. He's a keener. My husband's like a total keener. It's embarrassing, actually. He goes right to the front. He brings his little notebook. You know, he's taking notes, you know, because they're, and, and literally, of course, what they, they go to explain everything, and all they do is say, stand up and pray more, Lord. Right? That's why that was their shtick. 
There was no tape yet. It was just, you know, in seats. And so they stood up. So Steve stood up with his buddy. They're both in full Salvation Army uniform. And they're like, hold out your hands. So my, my husband holds out his hands. He's like ticked off because he has to put his notebook down. <laughs> he, he's like, oh, for Pete's sake, I can't take notes. So he puts out his hands. And then the, the guy says, you know, more, Lord. And then, you know, literally Steve's standing there and he's praying. It's like time, time, passing, passing, passing. He's, he looks over at his buddy and his buddy's standing beside him. And then they look around and everybody's flat out except for those two. <laughs> so he says to his buddy, well, it's, it's us or it's them. <laughs> so this nice guy comes up to him afterwards and said, you know, I couldn't help but notice, you know. <laughs> Steve says, oh, was it the uniform? He goes, no, it was the standing. <laughs> And so uh, Steve's like, yeah. So he's like, okay, just wait, wait. He's like, I, I, have, I think I have a word from the Lord for you. Like, I think I know the reason why. And so Steve's like, okay, just hang on to that thought. And he goes and gets his notebook. <laughs> and he goes, okay, yeah, I'm glad I brought this. You know? And the guy says, well, you know, I think that you need to learn how to receive. And my husband's like, yeah, okay. So he writes down, receive. <laughs> okay, I got it, like receive. And he goes, actually, the guy says to him, you know, there's a fantastic teaching on learning how to receive in the bookstore. Just stay here. I'm going to go get it for you. My husband says, no, 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 no. He said, I'll get it. What is the name of the thing? He goes, no, like, I'd really like to do it. He said, I'll, I'll go grab it. My husband goes, no, I don't want to put you out. Like, just give me the name of the thing and I'll go grab it. The guy goes, no, really. I really want to get you it. I just want you to stand here. Can you stand here? And Steve's like, no, 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 really. Like, I, I, I can do it. <laughs> More Lord. Yeah, so what happened was he learned how to receive. <laughs> and actually, literally now, my husband goes first, every prayer meeting, he goes to the front and he falls down. Like, just even out of obedience. He doesn't care. He doesn't. He just... So if ever you want to practice praying for anyone... You let me know and I'll send my husband over. It's good for the ego. <laughs> it's true. I kid you not. But all that to say, maybe you need to learn how to receive. I know you're big on it. But maybe you need to change your posture. Maybe you need to stop making sense of it. Maybe you need to lose your measurement tool. Maybe you need to stop comparing. Maybe you need to stop saying, well, that's what it is and this is what it is. Maybe you need to actually just assume a posture of poured out and broken. Maybe we need some more love. And the thing I felt when I was preparing for you tonight is I felt like what the Lord is willing to offer is more revelation. He's willing to break open uh, the boundaries of what we even thought possible. He's willing to bring us into the posture of confused and disturbed if we're willing to go with him if we're willing to move with him, if we're willing to just allow to, the next thing to happen. We don't have to know the whole thing. We just have to know the next thing. We have to trust that he's good. We have to trust that he knows what he's doing. We have to leave our prejudices behind. We have to leave what used to happen, what we used to be, what it means for us as a people. We need to leave those things behind. And we need to enter into the more of the revelation of what God's doing on the earth. And it's going to confuse us and it's going to disturb us and that'll be perfect. And the other thing that God wanted to give you more of was more love. And he can't give you more of this. He can't give you more of this. It's all available to you, but you need to actually exercise it. And you need to be broken and poured out before the Lord in worship. There needs to be more, 
more humility, more character, more perseverance, more willingness, more availability, more forgiveness, not just the theory of it, but the practice of it, more enemies, more enemy territory, more possibilities, a posture that says more, all of it, all my plan Bs, all my other options poured out at the feet of Jesus. In all of these things, both the revelation and the love are received before they're given. <laughs> they're received before they're, they're given. God, would you please give us more? <laughs>